0: Actually, I believe it was big swing dicks. so there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives, he needs a mirror.
1: I love the mansplaining, I'm enjoying it. What's mansplaining, Senator? Welcome to In the House and In the Senate. I'm Alicia Aiken-Radburn, and we're talking to women in Australian politics about who they are, what they do, and why it matters. Sally McManus is the Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the largest peak body representing workers in Australia. She is the first woman to hold the position of Secretary in the ACTU's 90-year history. Before joining the ACTU, McManus was the branch secretary and an organiser with the Australian Services Union. During her time in the union movement, she's led numerous campaigns to secure better outcomes for workers, notably the Equal Work, Equal Pay campaign for community services workers, a seven-year campaign that delivered pay increases of between 18 and 40% for all workers, the vast majority of which were women. So Sally, primarily on this podcast, I've been talking to women involved in politics, parliamentarians, staffers, um, but I thought it was really important to speak to someone in the union movement because... I think that that is I think that's where it's really the workplace where many Australians feel the practical effects of political decisions. And for me, it was a big part of how I became politically engaged. I was being paid $7.85 an hour back in the day at a bakery in the middle of Sydney CBD. And I just I thought to myself, this has got to be this is this is low. Like I was, I was 15, but I was like, this doesn't feel right. And I looked up the awards with a friend of mine and we discovered that we were being underpaid and we shifted into this like legally, legal, l- legal mode. And we were writing these letters and we ended up being back paid. And I remember being like, there must be, people must join together to get better results. And then I realised that's a thing and that's called the union movement. And you are the leader of the union movement in Australia, the secretary of the ACTU. Um, Can you tell me about the day in the life of the secretary
0: of the ACTU, Sally? Sally. Hey, um, yeah, absolutely. That's a great story. And I, I reckon that's the story of lots of, of people. Sometimes your first experience of unfairness uh, is when you're young in the workplace and, you know, being, having your wages stolen is is the first example of that. And all of those awards you went to go find were really fought for so hard by, by unions, by the union movement of Australia. Um, my uh, life I've got to talk about it in terms of not COVID times because COVID times are a bit weird. But before COVID, I'd probably spend half my time living out of hotel rooms and the other half at home, which is now in Melbourne. Um, On days where I'm in hotel rooms, I'd wake up, listen to uh, the morning radio. I'd read all the media stories around what's happening for workers. And then I'd go about visiting um, workers and unions in whatever city I'm in. So uh, I like to do that a lot. So um, before COVID, I'd spend, like I said, about half the time. So all day I'd be either in workplaces or in meetings with union leaders from all the different unions, representing everyone from, you know, nurses to sparkies, discussing uh, what what their issues are and, and what was happening for them and they're usually pretty full-on days and then at the end of the end of the day sometimes I would um, or during the day sometimes I do some media uh, as well but at the end of the day then I've got to catch up on all my emails which are usually unrelenting I try and not look, look at my phone I might send out a few tweets And then um, I'm a bit of a lone ranger when I'm on the road and I'll probably just go and have a quiet dinner and and go to bed and wake up and do the same thing the next day, probably get on a plane. Um, When it's not COVID time, it's sort of like that, except I would like run for at least half an hour. Um, I'll go to boxing at the end of the day too. I've been doing like some form of martial arts most of my life. And at the moment I'm about to turn 50, I'm doing boxing. So I get to get out some of the stress and visualise some of my enemies. (laughs) But uh, um, I do, when I'm in Melbourne, more um, meeting, making sure the ship of the ACTU is heading in the right direction and uh, just making sure our overall strategy is on track.
1: I really like that you mentioned that you make time for exercise because this is the question that I've been kicking off every interview with. And I'm just like, when do you look after yourself? And I think that that is so good. And I might have to take up boxing.
0: <laughs> I reckon it's really important to have a routine. Um, and for me, it certainly is. And so uh, it's either early in the in the morning or at the end of the day. And sometimes I can't you know, do the boxing, I've got to cancel it because I've, I've got to go elsewhere. I do it with a trainer. Uh, so, and that's good for me because someone else gets to boss me around because I sort of spend all day being in charge and it's great to have, you know, a period of at least half an hour where someone else tells you what to do. But um, in terms of running, that's sort of an easier one that you you can build in time to do that. And so, you know, keeping that routine of exercise I reckon is really important for health and for your mental health.
1: I think that that is I'm trying to do that with my 5am F45 at the moment, which I've just Whoa. kicked off again. And yeah. it's not. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll report back. Um, Sally, you at the age of 16, you first started getting involved in union activity. Um, you joined other students in a supporting a teacher's strike, a protest against teacher layoffs by the Griner government. Tell me about that process of being activated as a unionist. Well, it's it's a different path to go down, particularly at 16 before you'd even reached university, where, where I think a lot of young people do find, do become activated by the union movement and their path starts there.
0: I can't say that looking back that I would have seen it as uh, even like been activated as a unionist or even a union event um, it was probably later on where I was able to, to, to understand the full picture of it. But essentially what I knew is our teachers have been sacked at school. Uh, our teachers were organising a big protest and some of us, not all of us, got on trains um, from suburban Sydney and took the long trip into town to go to what was, you know, back then one of the most amazing experiences to be surrounded by over 50,000, you know, people who were all saying the same thing. And and for me it was, wasn't the idea of uh, even the injustice of our teachers being sacked, which was pretty bad in the middle of the HSC, but it was actually the feeling of power that experience from being around uh, a, a big group of people who all felt the same and that it, it's hard to explain that that particular feeling and it's and it's you, you can't really replicate it I don't think you can replicate it very easily on social media although you can to a degree but um, that feeling of I guess it was solidarity of, of, of people um, going away uh, together uh, in a direction and all feeling the same, and that that feeling that you get of power, which is way beyond yourself. So I think that's probably the essence of unionism. It certainly is. Um, but I felt it at that time. So um, that was definitely like I, I didn't forget that feeling uh, and the 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 sense that that's where change happens. How did that
1: track for you? What what took you from that sixteen-year-old heading in on the train to? you were the president of the Macquarie University Students' Union. How how did that journey carry through and take you to being the Secretary of the Australian Trade Union Movement?
0: Well, to be honest, some days I can't believe it myself. Like, I come from a very ordinary background, neither of my uh, working-class background in suburban Sydney and neither of my parents would be union activists. It's not as if, like, my dad was in the union, but it's not really anything that was talked about. Um, and... You know public school and gone to university first in the family to be at university uh studied philosophy of all things um and yeah I decided to run in the for, for student union uh not really expecting to to win and, and I did and so I think I was like 20 when that happened so uh, that was like an early learning experience and we were having a big fight with the uh, university around um, probably the same thing students are fighting for. Ne- around now it was around funding and a- around uh, how much Vice-Chancellor was being paid and how little was being put into into students uh, and around the things that governments were doing. But uh, then the ACTU, which obviously I'm the head of now, advertised for trainee organisers. So organisers are people whose job it is to Organise workers to bring about power—that feeling that I had when I was 16. Effectively, so uh, I was just so excited when I heard them advertise that, and I thought, "Wow!" Like being, like having a job where it's your whole job to do that. I, I can't think of anything more that I would love to do more. And so I was lucky enough to get that job as a trainee organiser, and I was 21 or 22 then and 22 I think and so started off pretty young in the trade union movement that was back in 1994 and I was an organiser for my union so I took a long time to learn that job it's not an easy job and sort of the craft of 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 learning how to um, build power in a workplace and how to then achieve things uh, does take a while I did that job for which I absolutely loved for about 11 years and then um, I stood to be the leader of my union and which i which I won that so I was the leader of my union when I was about 20 uh, 30 32 or 33 and I stayed in that position which I also loved uh, until um, for another 10 years and then I thought well um, either I stay in this or there's all these young people coming underneath me that are really really talented um, maybe I should have a go at the big job. And so I made a, a big um, uh, sort of a risk. I, I, I left what I was doing, moved ta- I moved cities and uh, I took up a position at, at the ACTU as a, as a campaigner, as a, as a sort of the campaign director and it happened to be that the secretary at the time, like about a year and a bit into that job, he suddenly left and so I put up my hand and, and said that I, that I would like the position and I, I was lucky enough to get the support of all the unions. So uh, some of it was, when you think back, like um, just random luck, like I was trying all the time to do things, like to, to get the traineeship and obviously to stand for positions and you've got to sometimes take, take risks as well, but, so, but also I guess... I did want to be the ACTU secretary and sort of, you know, set about putting myself in a position that, um, that, that if you know the unions thought I was good enough, that that, that they'd be able to pick me.
1: I want to get to the ACTU and the current priorities of the ACTU, but first I just want to ask you, I really liked how you talked about the need to hone your craft as an organiser because I feel like that is very transferable across a lot of workplaces and for young women. Um, I I always hear this phrase used, imposter syndrome, um, and I know, like, you know, even myself, I I sometimes walk into work and I'm just like, oh, God, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm really interested to know – I feel like the union movement would be a, a, a challenging environment. I know I've got well, – my best girlfriend works at the AMWU and I've always been so impressed when I hear her on the phone to, like, delegates that are, you know – 55, 60 year old men and i i wonder as you were you were quite young starting off in the union wo- movement as a woman how did you negotiate gender and power dynamics and asserting yourself
0: oh yeah so that wasn't straightforward um had it on neg- it navigated i did my best basically but it wasn't that easy so of course being a young person you have that problem in the first place people aren't going to automatically um trust you or for that matter give you credit that you might know what you're doing because in a way you you probably didn't when you were you were that young but you know you could you still needed the confidence to to go out and do the job every day and also being a, a woman so it was like obviously a, a double issue um, I've sort of always just taken not always wrong to say always but I've learned to um just basically be yourself in whatever circumstance you're in. Um, not try and, you know, never never lie to people. Just tell them the truth. If you don't know something, be honest about it. Um, really apply myself to, you know, the thing that I believe in, like the thing that I I believe in, and and the the, the principles that you have. Like stick to them. Um, I find if you're if you're if you're honest with people, and they can see, you know, that you may not. Um, you know be the the most experienced person in terms of your age um, or they might have their own sort of internal um, sexism or external or just overt sexism but in the end I think they will respect you if you're honest and if they absolutely know you're going to be on their side the union world all the every single day is it's about conflict um, and you don't I'm not someone and I don't think all union officials are people that, you know, really love it, like don't do it because you love conflict but it, you get used to it and um, you've got to be tough like you do. And so just in order to be tough, it's it's not like an outside performative thing. I think it's more about just knowing um, where you stand. So being really strong in your principles and your beliefs um, and also knowing that You've got a whole group of people um, behind you uh, or, or with you at any time. That's where you draw um, strength from, and it's a type of that's the reason why you know um, you don't back down in situations. So. I mean, that's a whole lot of things you learn over time, but it's not as if, I, you know, like anyone, you come to a new job or a new position, like knowing nothing. I look back in a way, I thought, oh, thank God that I didn't, um, you know, know all the things I didn't know because I probably would have been too scared to get up every day. But, um, but you know, I just believed in what I was doing and I, I felt I was so lucky to have that, that job. Taking
1: you to the Australian Council of Trade Unions at the moment. What's keeping you up at the at, at night at the moment? What are your, what's on the top of the to-do
0: list for you? Um, inequality and the fact that our country's getting worse and worse and by inequality, I'm talking about um, economic inequality. So effectively what's happening in Australia is we're, you know, younger generation uh, inheriting worse living standards and that hasn't happened. Um, and so that's, that that's happening and it's because basically um, the people at the top are very rich are just getting richer and richer and um, the people it's not even at the bottom everyone else is 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 not so it's all about um, fairness and about fairly sharing you know the the wealth um, that we have as a country and so we know that that's a problem and that's the thing that that the main driver of what we're all about like trying to to address and I guess unions have always been about that it's about fairly sharing the fruits of your labour quite literally and then below that there's all the reasons why and there's lots of reasons um, and essentially part of you know what I do is, is try and address those reasons.
1: What are the levers that we need that you think we need to start pulling in order to address that intergenerational fairness you know like i'm 28 and it's something that i worry about and you know i feel like i'm getting on so i can't even i can't even imagine you see it with like the school strike for climate action and that's just talking about the climate what, what practical steps does the government need to be taking to put us in a better place in the future
0: well there was time in history in australia where um We are much more equal. Um, In fact, for a period of time, we were one of the most equal countries in the world and um, outcomes, and by that I mean basically equality of life um, as a society and for everyone improves because of that. And it really comes down to what type of bargaining power do working people have? compared to how much bargaining pa- um, power employers, and in this case in our country, basically the employers who really um, dictate what goes on are the big, big employers, not your local shopping shops or not your local cafes, it's your multinationals and big business in our country that really determine things. And what's happened over a period of time is that um, that that bargaining power has shifted and it's shifted because Um, governments have allowed workers' rights to be taken off them and that's meant that uh, work's becoming more insecure. Um, You know, we've got this casualisation and gig economy have really spread and wages have been kept low. Where you um, give workers the support and the rights they need to be able to balance that bargaining power, well, it's sort of up to them. They can organise and, and negotiate for better wages and conditions. They can push for that right across industries, but at the moment it's just so out of balance and so that's the fundamental thing that's got to change.
1: I want to delve a little bit deeper into the gig economy. I think that this year we've seen some really, really awful stuff. We've seen deaths within the industry and I I think it's also been really, frankly, just upsetting to see where where. Incidents like that sit within newsworthiness. I don't think that we've heard enough of them and I I don't think that we're seeing the reaction from the companies that employ gig workers um, that we would in any other circumstance where something is receiving huge news coverage so i was just wondering where where is that you, you would you would w- work with gig workers quite often where's that up to and is there any sort of comfort or are we yeah. working towards change there practical change from those employers
0: I think we absolutely are, and the big problem is, is those employers are pretending they're not employers. So the Ubers and the Deliveroo's say basically, "Oh no, we're just this, you know, app company," and everyone else, all the people that you know are riding and delivering food, they're all their own businesses, and so they're basically just using a um, a legal argument to get out of you know giving workers their rights, Um, and whereas entirely you know clear that they are just modern day employers and they're just using technology um, in a way that they can because technology allows them to so and of course they're reaping in all the profits you think about those you know delivery apps and and especially with the pandemic just how much their businesses have grown and part of that's been on the back of um, exploiting workers and unfortunately in Australia like there's been you know six um, riders um, die in the last part of last year. And that's because, effectively, they've got less rights than workers did in our country 100 years ago, and that's because they don't get all the basic things like the minimum wage, like health and safety laws, uh, all of those basic things everyone else gets that protects them and makes sure they're not exploited, and they don't get them because um, of this sort of legal fiction that the companies are, are trying to uphold. Now the hope with all of this is that it's not just Australia where this is happening, it's happening all around the world, And workers and some governments around the world are taking action because they just can see that this is ridiculous um, and unfair uh, that that they're doing this. And so uh, there's been court cases, there's been law that's been brought in. Um, In Australia, there's been court cases taken by the Transport Workers Union. Um, Some they've won, some they've lost. The problem is, is these companies have so much money. As soon as you win a case, they just change something slightly so that they can get away with saying they're not an employer again. So really, there's got to be changed by governments. Like governments have got to step in and say that um, within this particular area, these people are workers, therefore they deserve the same rights, and they can do that by a simple change to the law. But of course, uh, our current government's not too keen or in giving workers any extra rights and. I'll just say to those people who, I mean, you and I, you know, feel it when when you know people are killed and people are exploited. But some people will either ignore it or, or just say, oh, that's not good, but it doesn't affect me. Any job that can be broken down to a gig or a, a task can be allocated by an app. And if we don't update our laws to make sure all workers, no matter who they are, get get rights with teachers, nurses, like anyone, anyone's job could be allocated in that way. Um, So, you know, if we don't take rights to protect work, um, the delivery riders will, it will be a matter of time before this gets into other areas, which it already is in the NDIS. That's how a lot of those workers are now defined too.
1: How do, how close are we, do you think? Because this seems like, you know, as soon as we have this conversation, I feel like a lot of people listening with they feel that sense of urgency, like this is basic, this needs to change. We're in 2021. We need laws that reflect how we work. Um, How close do you think we are to see some tangible change?
0: Unfortunately, it's really, really hard to... um win laws that get introduced into parliament and then um, cover every worker and the reason why is there's massive vested interests in stopping that happening and so for example just look at the issue of wage theft like that's just law breaking now if that was happening in any other area like there's this massive outbreak of I don't know people breaking into houses you can imagine governments saying oh we're going to act on this we're going to do this we're going to do that but they don't when employers are stealing workers money um, and that's because of this, this vested interest problem. So whenever working people have tried to push for change, they always face like a, a big opposition. And then when you've got a government that mainly listens to those vested interests, which, of course, the coalition government does, um, it's, it's a very big uphill battle. So the elements that you need are very clear about what needs to happen for the change, which we are. We've done all of that work. We know what's got to happen with the law and we've got to, you know, win public opinion, um, and like, like those unions have been doing, and like we're doing, and arguing for. Um, but even that's not enough. Then you need to, um, you know, have a government that's willing to do it. So uh, it, it hasn't. It's been the same. Like whether it be like the fight for, for you know, forty-eight hour working week, or or equal pay for women. All of these things were never given to us. They so were just like a really hard fight. And I imagine this, unfortunately, it will be the same.
1: I want to take you to minimum wage. I think that, you know, COVID has shown us and it, it's unfortunate that it took COVID to see such, to see JobKeeper elevated to a rate that actually pulls people out of poverty rather than continues the cycle of poverty. I, I, I wanted to ask you about both JobKeeper and the minimum wage. Um the ACTU wants to see the minimum wage rise. Can you tell me about the what the practical impact of that would be for a worker?
0: Yeah, so one of the things that Australia led the world in is this idea of a living wage. And back in um, the earlier early part of last century, so a long time ago, now twenty five years ago, we won this idea that if you work full-time, you should earn enough so that you can support yourself and you can support a small family. And that was a principle in law won by Australian workers. Then you look at some of the fights in the United States now, they're all living wage fights. That's what they talk about. $15 an hour is all a living wage fight. and They call it that. Around the world they call it that. Well, we won it first. Then what happened is, like I was saying before, over the years, Governments have stripped workers of their rights, and now our minimum wage is not a living wage. It's less than what um, poverty levels are, less than what a, a living wage should be. And what should it be? So, around the world, there's been this discussion, and they say it's about sixty percent of the medium or the average wage. Um, so that means that our uh, our wage would need to go up by about five dollars an hour. Um, the minimum wage so it's around 20 at the moment so it would need to go up um that 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 would mean that if you're working full-time you're not in poverty and so that's a fight that's a justice fight you know the very idea that you should work full-time and not be able to support yourself is not just un-Australian it's 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 something that we should just reject as a society no matter what country you're in so there's there's that issue and once again like I was saying that Uh, up against us are all the employers, all the vested interests and the government. Um, Every single year we argue for increases and every single year they argue against it. And so what we've been saying is that actually the government needs to change change the laws to mandate that that the minimum wage should be at least a living wage so that we, we get that principle back again.
1: And I think the reason why these fights are so important is because if you strip it all back, we're really just talking about how we want to live, how we want people to be able to live as a society, quality of life. Um, life's short. And I think that that's why fundamentally, I think sometimes we can become distracted by politics, by headlines, by, you know, who's appearing on Insiders this weekend. But at its core, it's all just about how we want people to be able to live and and live, not just survive.
0: That's so true. It's so true. I mean, what is life? And like you say, it's so short, it's about, in the end, um, how happy you are. And so, of course, being able to um, have a decent place to live, being able to, if you want, have a family, being able to um, eat healthily, all of those things. Um, have a little bit extra so that you can you can do other fun things is the whole, you know, you know, what is a good life. And so, you know, there's plenty of wealth in the world for every single person to have that good life, except we don't because the re- really rich people are hoarding it and they don't want to give it um, to to others. And so unfortunately, like I was saying before, it's always a struggle to win um, fairness and to, to get what is a fair share of the world's wealth. And so on, in Australia, the union movement's always played that role and obviously we continue to do it.
1: I feel like you have quite a rewarding job.
0: <laughs> yeah, well... At least you know that you're achieving something uh, every day, and you're fighting the good fight. Absolutely. So, uh, and it's also really never boring. That's absolutely sh- for sure. Can be stressful, but um, the stress is well worth the reward of knowing that you've got the privilege of um, being part of an amazing movement. Sally, I've just got two more questions to
1: end on. I wanted to take you to Parliament House and parliamentary culture. Um, I'm a former staffer and it's been pretty harrowing as a staffer to see the stories. you almost like I, I, I had to turn 7.30 off because there was just one too many story um, I was wondering your perspective as a union leader. What have you thought of the action taken by the Morrison government so far to protect workers in Parliament House and what are the next steps to addressing uh, the environment for women in Parliament
0: House? Well, um, I think Parliament House is the ultimate um, show of how power and privilege lead to these types of things and unchecked power and privilege there's no uh, workplace more like that than Parliament House and you know from working there and I, I certainly know from having to spend time there that it's full of people who um, just have entitlement like they honestly do um, and because they are the most powerful people in the country uh, they they sometimes that that absolutely you know supercharges that so change at Parliament house is absolutely important but got to remember that sexual harassment and sexual abuse go way beyond parliament house like it's in workplaces across the country and where you see power and entitlement or privilege like operating you're gonna you're gonna see it so that's why the changes that need to happen um aren't just ones at parliament house so for example um sexual harassment making that those laws stronger um not not leaving it up to workers to try and fight for for strong laws or strong policies even, workplace by workplace, whereas a country should say that we're going to have strong laws that mean that a worker, if if they're experiencing sexual harassment and their employer is not doing anything about it, they've got somewhere to go, an independent umpire to go, and that that person would have the power to do things, for example, like say, I'm sorry, I'm going to ensure that the the person who the allegations made against um, is moved to another department. If the employer's not doing it, this person does it. Like all the things that, that clearly need to happen to protect people when they are um, the victims of of that power and privilege. So, I think what needs to happen is is uh, better uh, laws for all uh, workers, women and men, um, so that you know we off- we found you know things like. Um, Uh, for example, uh, racial discrimination, sexual discrimination and then sexual harassment, big changes don't really happen until it becomes unlawful. And so then it's in the interest of the employer to make sure it doesn't happen either. So if employers think that they need to make the change because otherwise um, there'll be consequences for them, they'll do it. If they think that um, they don't necessarily need to because there'll be no consequences, a whole lot of them won't. So we can't just rely on goodwill all the time. We need strong laws.
1: A major reason why I was motivated, I guess, to start this podcast was because I was feeling so negative about the coverage that we'd we'd seen this year. And I wanted to amplify the voices of women in politics and politics adjacent just to remind... Particularly young women, that there are some amazing people in positions of power and influence who are doing great things. So, my last question was I'm feeling, I've been left very, feeling very inspired by our chat. I'm just like, <laughs> tomorrow at work, I'm going to be very, I'm, I'm feeling good. The imposter syndrome's gone. I was wondering, um, what's your biggest piece of advice to young women and young people in general who are interested in unionism, the union movement and want to get involved?
0: Um, Well, just do it. I would say absolutely. Um, You can start small in your own workplace and it's really all unions are is about Um, people deciding that they're going to stick together and, you know, in the face of, you know, trying to, you know, the powerful, okay, we're all going to stick together and um, stick to our guns and that's where our power is going to come from. Um, But I wanted to address a little bit of different advice um, for young people, uh, especially young women around imposter syndrome that you talked about. So I've got this little trick that I'm really um, happy to share you know how sometimes like for, you're sitting in a meeting or you're at some event and you think, oh, I won't say anything because really, you know, I, I'm worried that it's not going to come across um, correctly or I'm, I'm not, what I've got to say is not important or you're just nervous or you're thinking that I shouldn't really be here, I'm not up to it, all those things that you said. Just think about, um, find a bloke that's around your age, around your level, no matter what your level is, someone that you know is not as smart and capable as you and watch how that person behaves. Do they for one minute think that I shouldn't speak because what I've got to say isn't important or I shouldn't take up time in this meeting? Not once, not once would that thought even cross their mind and just remember, well, if they can do it, well, you certainly can. So, Um, Sometimes it's worthwhile um, carrying around the very ordinary bloke in your back pocket and just reminding yourself of him uh, at any point that you think that um, your voice uh, isn't worth being heard
1: live life with the confidence of an ordinary bloke which is a lot of confidence
0: a lot of confidence
1: (laughs) thank you so much for speaking to me sally i really appreciate it and i'm going to be putting some links to the young workers center um on my instagram so everyone can check it out and they can follow you as well you you're you're mostly on twitter
0: I am on Instagram too, but they might have to put up some of my... Um, bird, uh, photos. my bird photos. Bird photos. <laughs> but there's other stuff too. Thanks
1: so much, Sally. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. That was heaps of fun. Oh, See
1: good. I'm so glad. See you later. Bye-bye. In the House and in the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wadjuk people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and In the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe, and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people, and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at In the House, In the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests, throwbacks to my time in staffing and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at alicia.akenradburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye (laughs) to Luke.
0: Next question. (laughs)